This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Okay. Hello everyone, thanks for coming today. To, uh, we have uh, two excellent Canadian authors with us. Um, we have Lisa Moore, February, um, which uh, is a novel uh, about, about Helen, who, uh, whose husband Cal dies in a real-life disaster in 1982, sinking of uh, an oil rig. Um, next to Newfoundland. Um, I probably pronounced that wrong. <coughs> it's, it's spelt Newfoundland, but it rhymes with understand. So, um, in Canada, Newfoundland. Um, there we go. There we go. Thank you. Yeah. And um, it begins, the novel begins with a, uh, a phone call to Helen, who's uh, in, her, in her 50s, and her wayward son, John, rings her up to tell her that uh, he has made a girl pregnant. Um, and, and from then on, we, we, we kind of see the history of the family through this kind of uh, fragments of their life throughout the, throughout the past uh, 25 years, I guess, um, since, since, uh, since the disaster and how it affects Helen. Um, it's a novel that's been uh, long-listed for the Booker Prize this year. Um, uh, it's also um, been uh, various... It's, uh, it's, it's Lisa's second novel, um, and her first novel was shortlisted for the Giller Prize, uh, and she's also had a book of stories shortlisted for the Booker Prize, um, and um, so we'll, we'll be hearing from her soon. Um, Maria Endicott, uh, whose novel Good to a Fault uh, was on the Giller Prize uh, this year, um, also on the Commonwealth, uh, won the Commonwealth Writers Prize for the Caribbean and Canada, which uh, also, so did Lisa's. Um, there's a lot of parallels as we were exploring. Um, and Good to Fault begins uh, as Clara, uh, wondering about, worrying about the state of her soul, crashes into a car of uh, a family down on their look, sleeping in the car. There's uh, Lorraine, Clayton, and their three children, uh, one of them only a baby. And it's, uh, their worries increase as they find out when they're being treated for their minor injuries that uh, Lorraine is, uh, has terminal stage cancer. Um, and in a kind of leap of faith, um, Clara, Clara takes them into her house um, and, and, and gives her life meaning and, and, and begins to look after these people. And, and the novel follows what happens as a result. Um, so uh, if we, um, I should mention, I've, I've mentioned the prizes, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> prizes, prizes have oh, go ahead, mention them again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're gonna begin with a couple of readings. Um, Marina's gonna go first, um, and we'll hear from Lisa, and, and then we'll we'll explore some of the parallels between the books and the differences, and um, you'll have a chance to answer your own questions soon. Um, okay. Over to you, Marina. Thanks, Luke. Can you hear me? It's so nice to have somebody else do the summary of the book. I always f fight with myself about what I'm going to say about it. And it's very handy to have it said by somebody else. Um, when thinking about what to read for tonight, I was—I like the title of this um, session about uh, going on after a death. Um, and so I thought I would break all the rules and read to you from very late in the book, uh, kind of a spoiler. So if you really don't want a spoiler, then you should just start humming loudly and <laughs> put your fingers in your ears. But uh, I think this is a spoiler that's actually a good thing to have as you begin the book. There is a lot of death in this book. Everybody in the book really is going on after death of some kind or somebody. Um, but this is one expected death that actually doesn't happen. As Luke said, 
uh, Lorraine, at the beginning of the book, is diagnosed with terminal lymphoma and spends a, a two-thirds of the book dying. Um, and then against everyone's expectation, that doesn't happen. By that time, Clary has lived with these children for um, almost a year and has changed her life entirely in order to look after these children and has become, um, in de facto, their mother in many ways, however difficult that has been. So I'm going to start here with the chapter called Cut Out Hearts. The chapter is preceded by what Luke described as a kind of, <laughs> she's determined to fall off the stage. <laughs> a kind of um, a Dickensian little Christmas where the, the, everybody is dying and, and they all have dreams where, where Lorraine dies. And the chapter begins, but Lorraine did not die. Graft versus host disease swept over her in three ugly weeks of sores and thrush and cramps, and then it swept away again because she told her body to smarten up. Almost secretly, she turned off from that long sloping downward hallway. After a few weeks, she was measurably better. She's had a bone marrow transplant, I should say. She was walking around. She was healed. One thing Lorraine was not prepared for, the shame of recovering. When the chief doctor came in one morning to tell her officially that all her results were good, very good, she didn't know who to tell. Clayton, her husband, was working all the time. She hoped the woman who'd been moved into the bed beside her had not heard the pleasure and relief in the doctor's voice, how glad he was to be able to say, well, this is good, very good. They said she could go home on Monday if the weekend went well, something for them to plan for. Clary was the one to call, but Lorraine was ashamed to talk to her for everything she'd been doing, the huge, unpaid, unpayable debt, and afraid of what that obligation would mean now. There was also the shame of not being completely, freely happy. How could she not be happy, especially compared to the woman in the next bed, not so lucky, who was having exploratory surgery in the evening and sobbed to her daughter on the phone about the black options they had outlined for her? The desperate clench in Lorraine's stomach might take a while to relax, she thought. She was not ungrateful, just slow to realize change, having to pick up life again. She didn't want to tell anyone yet. On Monday, they said Tuesday. On Tuesday, Clary went to the hospital in the afternoon because Lorraine had left a message asking to see her. She thought she had the wrong room. Lorraine was not there and the bed was stripped but they were saying she was doing well. She could not be not dead, no. She was in the washroom, the door slightly open, brushing her teeth, wearing clothes. Lorraine, Clary said, her voice sounding weirdly ordinary. Are you all right? Lorraine spat into the sink and rinsed and stood up. She dried her toothbrush with a white hospital washcloth and put it in her, her toilet bag. I'm good, she said. I'm really good. Lorraine, uh, Clary stood in the middle of the room. The other bed was empty too. What had happened to that poor woman? Lorraine said, they say I can go home. Clary did not speak for a second. Then she shook her head and smiled and shrugged her shoulders. Wonderful, she said. Yes, so I'm going. Well, of course. Clayton got us a place we'll go over there this afternoon. 
That did not make sense. Clary's chest was tight. Lorraine went to the closet and added her toilet bag to the already packed suitcase. Seems pretty amazing to be getting out of here, she said. She moved a pile of magazines from the closet to the bed. But Lorraine, Clary said. Then she didn't know how to continue. All her bones moved downwards as if in deeper gravity. He's gone to get Dolly from school and he'll get them packed up, but I wanted to tell you about it alone, Lorraine said. She was carefully meeting Clary's eyes every step of the way, every word she said, not shying away from it, even though it would be bad. Clary looked like she'd been punched but hadn't figured out what had happened yet. Lorraine thought her own face must have looked like that. Her first day in here. Does your brother know, Clary said. She was speaking too slowly. He phoned last night from Vancouver. I told him they'd let, be letting me go home. Did he say, he said to give you a kiss from him. Lorraine did not move, but Clary flinched away. So Clary, I have to say thanks for everything, Lorraine said. There isn't any way to thank you for looking after my kids all this time, but I know I owe you big time. Inside the hollow globe of her head, Clary was unable to figure all this out. She fought the pressure in her chest. She stood up straight, making more room for air. Clayton has a place. You mean a room? It's okay, he says. It's an older building, but they're renovating, and our suite is already done. He'd be the part-time super, so there's a little money in it, and it looks like a great deal. Where? Lorraine stopped talking. Clary asked again, where is the apartment? Lorraine looked at her without smiling. They are our kids. Well, I realize that. Her legs were shaking. I realize that, but if you are planning to move them out of the school district, they would have to transfer. And which school would they be? It's in City Park, Lorraine said. It's not a bad place. It's an older building, a little run down, but it's what we can afford. The kids will be fine. You're not ready, though. This is impossible. You can't look after children in this state. And Clayton, you think he can manage them? But that was enough for Lorraine. You can't stop thinking of us as low class. You can't stop, she said. You keep thinking you're better than me, even though you try not to. It's built into your whole life, but we're the same as you. We're just the same. Clary felt hot tears welling up like tears of blood to be accused of prejudice when she had worked so hard. How could Lorraine think so? She would, she would think so, with her trailer park ignorance. Shocked, Clary smacked that thought away, but it was there, less worthy, less human. Lorraine said, here's the difference between you and me. You got taken to the doctor more and the dentist, and your mother filled your head with stuck-up shit about how great you are, and you got to live in the same house all your life. That's most of it. You went to school for longer, and you worked in a clean office instead of cleaning the office. You have a better-looking face and better-looking clothes, and that gives you some feeling that you are better than me. I don't. I don't. You're mistaken. I'm trying to tell you how it is for me, Lorraine said. Here it is, the same as it is for you. Her eyes were hard to look at. When you're hurting because you have to lose Pierce, that means you know exactly how I hurt to lose him. I don't have less feelings because I have, because I don't know the words to say them. I don't have less to say to my kids because it's not always, it's not grammar. You think I'm not as good for them as you are. You're right, Clary said sadly. The tears had receded and the hot blood behind them. It was too important, it was the children. She could not be silent or polite. There was only now to say it. It's not you. It's Clayton. I think it will be hard for him to look after you well enough. Still polite after all. Well, he gets to give it a try, Lorraine said, not angry anymore. She gathered her paintbrushes from the water cup and set things in place in the paint box. 
He was doing okay till you crashed into us. That was the first time she had mentioned the accident since it happened. She had not blamed Clary for it then. But what will happen to you if things get hard, if you run out of money? You can't work, you have to be careful. You can't leave the hospital behind or head for Fort McMurray and the children, they need stability and their ordinary life, not to be shunted around the country living from hand to mouth. We are their ordinary life, not you, Lorraine said. She stopped, the cup still in her hand, and looked straight at Clary, piercing her with the stern arrows of her eyes. The kids don't give a rat's ass whether they have money or a nice house. They just want me and Clayton with them. They love us, him and me. Him too, just not just me, don't kid yourself. You're a babysitter to them. They'll be glad to leave you. Clary didn't speak. She was having trouble with her ribs, like a stitch. They didn't seem to want to expand properly to let her breathe. It's not your fault you don't get it, Lorraine said, red smears of rouge bright on her cheeks. You never had kids of your own, and you weren't very well brought up. That was it. Clary turned and left the room. She drove out of the parking lot crying, tears splashing on the steering wheel on her skirt, running down her face and into her collar, wetting her chest, which still wouldn't open to let her catch her breath. Her feet were clumsy on the clutch and the brake. Without meaning to go there, she found herself at Paul's house. She stood on his porch, trembling, pressing the doorbell. He was not going to answer. He would not be there. He opened the door. He saw her distress and took her hand, her arm, and pulled her inside. What? What is it? He said. She could not answer. She could barely breathe. Clary, tell me, is it Lorraine? She sobbed, nodding, not intelligible. Yes, she sobbed. Yes, yes, it is all Lorraine. Is she, what, has she died? No, she has not. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Marina. Um, so, now over to Lisa. Oh, <laughs> um... I lost my place so that I could clap. <laughs> so just be a sec. That was really beautiful reading, Marina. Thank you. Okay, so um, yes, the Ocean Ranger was an oil rig on the uh, coast of Newfoundland, and it sank in a vicious storm on Valentine's, a storm that began on Valentine's night in 1982, and all 84 men died. And uh, it was a, a tragedy that gripped the whole island, and um, it's something that's still very much a raw wound in Newfoundland because the rig never should have sank. It was because safety measures weren't taken. And I wanted to write about what it would feel like to be madly, madly in love with someone and lose them, um, especially if, if it was for you know a completely unnecessary disaster. So Helen, uh, my main character, um, has fallen in love again and uh, the, the new love in her life is causing her to go back over the last 27 years since the rig sank and think about uh, her first husband, Cal. Um, I'm going to read a section, a couple of sections. Uh, this one is about Helen deciding to try internet dating. So uh, <clears throat> this is much, much later, in uh, 2006. The girls had said a computer. The girls had said online dating. And Helen had tried it. 
Sometimes now she woke up in bed in the middle of the night, zinging with humiliation. She had written online with candor. What a fool. She had been earnest. She did not put her picture up. The girl said, don't send a photo. The girl said, there's plenty of time for photos later. Helen had struggled to define herself and what she wanted in a man. It seemed important to know what was true about herself, how to put into words the tumult of pleasure her life had been, how to say she had lost something big and was left with a hole in the middle of her chest and the wind whistling through, how to tell the pride she took in her work, that she had friends, how to explain that her friends were celebrating anniversaries, the 25th, the 40th, and they were smug in their marriages, smug in their happiness, rude about it. And it was a smugness that seemed designed to exclude. They didn't even know they were smug, and Helen had forgiven all of that. She wanted to mention that she didn't begrudge her friends their happiness. She wanted to mention that she was the kind of woman who had kept her heart open and it had been a struggle. There were other questions. How old, how young, what interests, what could she offer, what could she share? She wanted to say, I am so bloody lonely, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are, I am capable of loving you. She wanted to say, I will make love in such a way that you will be thankful for the rest of your days. She wanted to say, I am capable of that kind of pleasure. I am capable of experiencing it and capable of giving it. What she wanted was to talk. She wanted to have sex, but she didn't write that. She wrote that she wanted to talk. She wanted to cook for someone or, and this is the most humiliating part, to hold hands. Or, this is the most humiliating part of all, she wanted to discuss books. She wrote that she liked candlelight. She wrote that she expected kindness and a sense of humor. There was no humor evident in what she had written. No humor at all. It was morosely serious and completely dishonest. If she had been honest, she would have asked, could you be my dead husband for an afternoon? Could you put on his clothes? I still have them. Will you wear his cologne? Will you smoke export A's just for an afternoon? Will you drink India beer and turn the steaks on the barbecue? And will you be funny and tell jokes and leave groceries for the family down the road who have no groceries? Could you be Cal? Could you smile like Cal, a soft, lopsided smile, and raise a family like Cal, and be brave and courteous and charming with all my women friends, and be loved by all who know you? Could you be smart and awake as Cal, and can you make me come? over and over and over again. Helen and Cal had never held hands. It was one of the many things she regretted. They both saw the importance of keeping some distance. They were the kind of lovers who could have fallen into each other, been swallowed completely, and they had to guard against it. They did not hold hands. They did not eat off each other's plates. <laughs> but Helen had served him. She had made Cal coffee and put his wool mitts on the heater at night, and she thought about him when he was on the rig. And then I'm going to read an earlier section uh, from their wedding night. 
On their wedding night, Cal broke a full-length mirror in the Newfoundland Hotel. He must have touched it or knocked it in some way, but it seemed to spread with cracks all by itself. Helen wasn't looking, and then when she did look, there was mirror all over the carpet. It broke by itself because Cal had glanced at it, and all the bad luck to come was already in place. Everything was in that glance, and it smashed out of the mirror. They were just 20 and 21. She was knocked up, but that wasn't why they got married. Or maybe it was. They didn't choose to get married. They did it for their parents, or they did it for the big party, or they did it because in some deep and not often used part of their brains, they believed in ritual. Lapsed Catholics, they believed subconsciously that a wedding would weld them together. But they were already welded, and Helen had missed her period, and she told Cal, and he held her. He just put his arms around her, and she could tell he was wishing it wasn't happening so fast. Cal wanted a little bit of time before they had youngsters. Helen could tell that, but he didn't say. Wow, he said, or he said, great, or he didn't say anything. He moved his hand vigorously up and down her back as if she were a friend in need of consoling, a good buddy who had lost a big bet. And she put her arms around him too when she told him about the pregnancy. They'd been standing in the kitchen. Cal's sweater smelled of cigarette smoke and she pressed her face into his chest and felt the roughness of the wool against her forehead, rubbed her face against the roughness. This was his Norwegian sweater with the suede patches because he'd worn out the elbows and his mother had said, leave that sweater with me. Let me fix those holes. This was, will you marry me? Or, I guess we should get married. There was a slight pause while Cal gathered himself together. After all, this was a baby. They were talking about a baby. For Helen, 20 years old had felt very old, very mature. But to, for Cal, it felt like the two of them were just getting started. Wow, he said. In the Newfoundland Hotel, the bellhop scooped up Helen's train to help her into the elevator. Someone winked. A businessman opened a newspaper on the couch in the lobby and winked at Cal. Helen remembers the bellhop, careful with all the satin. He had a cotton ball in his ear. The doors of the elevator closed quietly, as, could, as quiet as could be, and Helen put her hand on the ruffles of Cal's shirt and pushed him back against the elevator wall and stood on tiptoe and kissed him, pressed against him, and the doors opened and there was an elderly couple waiting and they saw her kissing him and saw the dress and they took a step back and didn't even get in the elevator. Cal was so tall that sometimes in the kitchen, Helen would stand on a chair just to give him a proper hug. She would haul the chair over and get up and he'd turn from the eggs frying on the stove and bury his head in her breasts and put her ar his arms around her and squeeze hard. And she'd kiss the top of his head and then he'd go back to the eggs. He would always have music blasting when he was making breakfast. Cal put the key in the hotel room door and it opened and the room was big and they looked out the window and they could see the whole city. It was snowing 
snowing over the harbor and the ships tied up with their rusting flanks and the sharply curving bows and the orange boys piled up on the deck covered it with snow and snowing over the white oil tanks on the south side hills and the cars on Water Street, their pale headlights catching narrow fans of falling flakes and snowing over the basilica and Christmas lights looped across Water Street. Then Cal inched her zipper down all the way to the small of Helen's back where he had to jerk it because it was caught. He threw himself onto the big bed and Helen crunched the whole dress down, stamped her way out of the mountains of scratchy tull with her patent leather spikes. And Cal glanced at the hotel mirror. His face with its freckles and sharp intelligence and gangly arms and unfamiliar clothes he was naked beneath the tuxedo shirt, and he, dropped, he had dropped the pants on the bathroom floor, the jacket over the desk, and his black curly hair and big, big blue eyes, and the gentleness and humor in them, and all the lovemaking to come. Helen remembers the unadulterated energy it took to keep the enterprise in motion from that moment. One baby after another, and the jobs, the bills, snowsuits, dinner parties, disappointments. Sometimes she was immobilized by disappointment. Nights on the town, staggering home in each other's arms, dragging each other up the hill, and the stars over the kirk, graffiti on the retaining wall, all of that was in the mirror in the Newfoundland Hotel on their wedding night, and pow! Cal glanced at it, and the mirror spread with cracks that ran all the way to the elaborate curly cue mahogany frame, and it fell to the carpet, 50 or so jagged pieces, or the mirror buckled, or it bucked, or it curled like a wave and splashed onto the carpet and froze there into hard, jagged pieces. It happened so fast that Cal walked over the glass in his bare feet before he knew what he was doing and he was not cut. It was not that the breaking mirror brought them bad luck. It was not, it was not that, and Helen didn't believe that. But all the bad luck to come was in Cal's glance, and when he looked at the mirror, the bad luck busted out. Those two wonderful readings lead, lead really nicely onto my, my first questions, which is to do with structure of the novel. Um, I'll, ask, I'll ask separate questions to, to, to Marina and Lisa about this. But um, starting with Marina, um, in this novel, you spoke about the kind of almost fake happy ending in, in there. There's a kind of Dickensian um, Christmas scene where everyone gathers around the fireside together. and. Um, for and somebody to die. And it's, it's juxtaposed <laughs> with, with um, Lorraine in hospital, but, it, but it, it's, it's led up to by this kind of wonderful, almost... There's two happy endings in the book, really, because you start off hoping that Lorraine will get better, but it, it, you're quickly told she won't, and you, you, you don't really have much hope that she will, and, and so you begin to settle into this alternative happy ending of, of Clara, who, uh, who set up this lovely domestic situation with... with with children, but not over, only about how she's built her community into it and how she's fallen in love with Paul, the, the priest, and, mm. and how uh, Lorraine's extended family have come over and become come close to them. And um, I just wondered if you could talk about, you know, those, how, 
how you, how you set your novel up to have this kind of... Did you, did you intend to have this fake happy ending to make people question what was going on? Because you, you, you soon realise that there's a... that it's kind of fake, fake happy ending and that, that, yeah. that the separate one is... that they're completely incompatible, these, these, two, these two narratives that, that have been set up. I like what you're saying about the fakeness of it. I think uh, um, there, there are times, uh, as Clary is setting up this domestic happiness, and um, there's times when she, even herself, realizes that it's false, where she catches herself thinking, Paul will be there, the priest that she becomes, falls in love with. He'll be their dad, and I'll be their mom, and this will be a perfect little family. I mean, she's not saying it in thinking it in words, but she catches herself seeing them that way and knows she mustn't. Um, but that the, the knowledge uh, leaks away as she becomes seduced by the, the beauty of the children and loving them and, and wanting. Uh, it's one of the things that I really admire about your book is the, is the uh, wanting to write about love, about good love, and how powerful that is. And it's just underrepresented in fiction. I think we read a lot of uh, books about bad love and hard love and love that goes bad and love that started out poisoned. To be able to, to try to write about, it seemed to me kind of cheeky to try and write about something, uh, about love, people who actually loved each other, who tried to do things, who, good things for good reasons. But those are very hard things to do. And they, they go bad e even when you're with all the best motives in the world trying to be good. And so, and also, um, she's not a very uh, self-aware person, Clary, even though she knows she should be. She doesn't really, doesn't come naturally to her. Um, whether I had plotted out that structure in a, um, a very intelligent way, no, I, and sadly, I actually began the book thinking that, I, that Lorraine would die. My own sister had died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma just before I started writing the book, and of course, part of the impetus towards writing the book was to be thinking about her death and um, and there is a Paul in the book has a sister who has recently died so m my thinking about my sister actually went into Paul's sister instead and I found as I was working through the book that I really didn't want Lorraine to die I liked her very much for one thing and uh, and then in fact halfway through the writing the book I developed cancer myself and then I really didn't want her to die <laughs> And I also had children. And I think it was just one of those things where you, you uh, get older, you grow and experience a little bit more during the process of writing and see how it could be better. And it became clear to me that it would be better for the book and better because it would be harder for everybody if she lived. And uh, I think it did make it a much more interesting book because they then, then there's an extra parent around and they don't know what to do with each other. Yes, it's great. And it's such a surprise, I think, in the novel. Yeah. And, and that's, that's I'm sorry I spoiled it for you all, but you'll forget. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, thank you. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, so the structure of the structure of your novel, um, there's John, who, who kind of sets himself almost in opposition to his mother, Helen, who's, who's the kind of central consciousness of the book, um, sees how she has kind of um, kind of s surrendered herself so much to um, to love, really, and and to and to Callan is, is incomplete without it. And um, he talks at some point about how the, you know, he's he's always trying to fight the present from dissolving into the past. Um, and 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 he he falls in love, in fact, when 
he describes love as the present tense when he falls in love over a week we're, we're in, in, in the eternal sunlight of, of, of Iceland and, and kind of, um, <laughs> it's so lovely and, um, or he doesn't fall in love rather, rather he conceives the, or his woman conceives the child during this time um, but it struck me as that, as that was a kind of that was that was how the structure of this book works. It's, it's it starts with the, with the present and it, and it dissolves consistently into the past and and the story is almost how how, how to move forward from from the past and how to how to, how to whether it, whether you should fight that or perhaps you could. It's not a question, but, it, but it's well, I mean, I I have so many answers yeah. now. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, you know, the book is very much about about grief and. Um, like Marina, I, I also dealt with gre uh, death in my own family. My father died very suddenly of natural causes. And my mother and father were madly in love. And um, so I watched my mother go through that grief. And what, what you learn, what I learned about grief is that life goes on. And, you know, people are joyous and, and, and uh, funny things happen and you raise children and, and, and you realize the preciousness of life. But at the same time, I think the thing that most, I was most afraid of when I lost my father, whom you know, I thought was the best father in the world, was that I would forget him. And what I learned was that you don't forget. What happens is the memories change and they become richer and deeper and more textured. And as you change and grow, the, the memories you know, different meanings adhere to them. And, and so the person becomes present in a certain way that, um, that is, of, cor of course, different than when they were actually present. But, but you don't lose those memories. And, and that was, so I wanted, to, I wanted to look at the passage of time in this novel and how we experience memories. And then it's, it's you know, one of the things that you, um, learn very quickly when you're trying to write a novel is that you've got to have a character in peril. And the, the more <laughs> peril they're in, the better it is for you. And in Marina's book, you know, uh, her, her character, Clary, is um, an insurance adjuster who is financially quite comfortable and safe. And I'm just reading, you know, and, but, you know, not taking any risks at all. She's safe and settled and comfortable. And I'm reading through thinking, yes, this, is, this has got to fall apart. And it's true. When you love, you know, you're just taking incredible risk. And so, so there's John, this son, who calls his mother up. This woman who's raised four, in my book, this woman who's raised four children on her own, you know, and he's calling to say, I've got a woman pregnant after, you know, a wild uh, weekend <laughs> week. in, or week in Iceland. And he wants his mother to say, it's not your responsibility. Walk away from it. You have my permission to walk away from it. And I was so gleeful to make him <laughs> pregnant or, you know, to give him this because he's a, yeah, he's closed. He's not, he's not vulnerable and, yeah. and doesn't want to be. He's afraid of it. And, and then you know, he has lost a father. So the notion of walking away from fatherhood is, is not something that he can do easily. It's lovely the way that he, he gradually peels throughout the book as he's thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. And every time you return to John, I'm always very happy to get back to John and see where he's gotten to now, where the, how, where the peril has led him. 
John, John is a risk assessor for his <laughs> career. Um, and, uh, and, and both novels, I think, kind of follow this thread of kind of risk assessment um, and faith and how, how you choose whether to, you know, to leap off the kind of risks and pragmatism. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you could tell me, I mean, Clara, Clara makes this enormous leap of faith where she, you know, it's not, it's not her responsibility really. No, it's actually, that, it's that they, they crash into her and I yet. I was very careful to make it Saskatchewan, which has, yeah. it's a province in Canada that has no fault insurance. Right because I didn't want it to be a legal story. Mm. And as an American reviewer pointed out, if it was an American story, it would all be about who pays for the health care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't make it American. But, um, but the leap, that she, the, the, the risk that she takes, I don't think she sees it as a risk at the beginning. I think mm. she sees it as something she can't not do, that she can't let them go to a shelter. She's worked in shelters. She has been feeling useless for years and very comfortable and in a shell with almost, she calls it a membrane around her that she can't break through to actually interact with anybody in the world because she's comfortable and she's well off. And so it seems to her like a, like really um, in some way an act of God that she's got to look after these people. And, and yet um, Paul, who's the priest, she goes to ask for advice for when he asks her whether, whether she should do this, um, with all the notions of charity involved in, in Christianity, he says, "You don't have to do this. This is, you know, there's the idea that, that, that this is going beyond, beyond the kind of." You've gone to visit them in the hospital. Yeah. Many people would not think to do so much. He says. So, so I mean, uh, and both <laughs> books seem to take this kind of idea of pragmatism and and, um, and interrogate it. And, and um, I mean, did you? One of the things that Helen is, is she falls so completely in love. She says, you know, she says. Um, here you are, buddy. Here's a gift. I can't, I can't remember the exact words, but she, she doesn't know how to, how to not give herself entirely to, to Cal, and and, and so she's left so fra fragmented when, when when he goes, and um, and and, and we've, we've mentioned this before with John. It's the idea that perhaps there's a, a more cautious kind of pragmatic generation now who are, who are more reluctant to, 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 to fall in love or, or to risk to risk themselves. We we like looking at kind of individ individualistic society and perhaps trying to... Try well, to I don't know if it would be a gener... I hope yeah. it's not a generation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, Helen was young when she fell in love with Cal, yeah. and she fell in love with him overnight, and... Um, but she but she hadn't had... She didn't have any reason to think that, you know, the tragedy that happens would happen. Mm. But John is... does know yeah. He's he's a young boy when his father dies. He ends up going to uh, his mother is pregnant when the ocean ranger goes down, and so he inadvertently uh, ends up being present when she gives birth. And so he's gives the know, baby bottles in the middle of the night. Goes down to get the bottle from the fridge in the middle of the night. He becomes yeah. immediate. You know, he becomes yeah. grown up at, as a child, and then becomes a child as a grown up. Yeah, and I I think. Yeah, he's just a, he's afraid. Yeah, I mean the children the children in both the novels are very interesting actually because that you, you do those perspectives of children in both of them, um, and um, I wondered how much you kind of tried to kind of uh, act. Often children in novels are, are seen as kind of symbols of, of kind of innocence or cuteness, and and, <laughs> and, and um, how, how important is it to kind of to kind of I mean, or, or rather, you, you, those can quite adult adult things they have to confront um, and did you 
how hard was it to kind of write about children with that kind of level of adult knowledge um, and, and kind of create the you know, balance the constriction between that kind of innocence and, and, and what you're perhaps not supposed to know know at that age um, you know how um, we've both talked about things in our lives that infiltrated the book and it was actually about two years into the writing of the book I can't believe I was this thick um, before I started thinking, you know, I, I'm not sure about this, whether I should be appropriating people who are living in their car. Do I, what right do I have to write about people who are poor and living in their car? And I, I can't believe that I didn't remember this, but when I was six, my mother got cancer. It's like a long little happy carousel. Um, and because my father was an Anglican priest, but we, because she had cancer, we had to leave the small town and go to a big city. Uh, my father lost his parish because of that, and they ended up um, going across the country from Vancouver to Halifax with their four children in a car and they had no money they had nothing they you know they never had a house uh, for him to go and start a new life go to university in in Halifax and I'd somehow managed to forget that that was my life when I was six years old and that I felt the same kind of responsibility towards you know, in, in the book, the oldest daughter is nine and she um, goes through people's houses looking for money, knowing that they need first and last month's rent and knowing that they're going to need stuff. And, you know, she's trying to find those things. And I, I don't know how I had managed to just fool myself into thinking I was writing a, an original story when I was really just writing blatant memoir. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I spoke before about the challenges of your, of your subject. Um, one, one, one of the I think there's, there's a challenge in both books. Your, your challenge is to write about grief, which is quite a stas you know, a sense of stasis really. Um, but also to kind of obviously give the story some movement and, and move it forward. Um, how 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 hard how hard was that to kind of to keep a story about a grieving woman consistently interesting and illuminating? And, and well, um, it was. It was hard. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that she, yeah. her life is not static. No. She's raising children. Mm. She she works. She's yeah. she makes wedding dresses. She falls in love. Yeah. All but her interior life mm. is a yeah. It's a, it's an interrogation of what grief mm. is. What what how how can you love someone that's dead? And I I'm kind of astonished by the number of people that I've met since you know, because the book came out in Canada much er earlier, who have come up to me and said, my mother lost her husband and grieved for 27 years. You know, never saw, many people hold on to that mm -hmm. love for a long, long time. And, and the painful thing, I think, or one of the most painful things is that a dead person doesn't change. You know, they are, I mean, they do in, in, in the memories of those that live, but in some strange way, they, so there's a moment where Helen realizes if Cal were here now, he would be, you know, in his 30s, he would be gorgeous and young and I'm wrinkled and old and <laughs> what would we, you know, what would we talk about? And I, for me, there was so much about the thought of losing someone that you love that could be explored that um, I guess I, I feel like that emotional journey is is not static at all. No, that no. it's moves. This kind of ordinary and this ordinary kind of profound profound story, um, which is anything yeah. but ordinary. I guess you know it's so particular. And I think that's because because you are so brave in how how um, 
you dare to write about people who, who love each other desperately. And it's very, it's impossible not to understand why she is still mourning him. And, uh, and, and we're talking, moving on to, to you, that uh, you set yourself a similar challenge, um, not the same challenge, but you're writing about a character who wants to be good and, um, and, oh, who, yeah. and who doesn't, there's so much, so much of the subject of fiction is, is, is disaster, it's, 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 it's kind of uh, infidelity, it's drugs, it's, <laughs> it's, it's people falling apart. And um, how, how easy is it to kind of convey a story about a woman trying to be good? Um, and how easy is it to imbue that with kind of drama and, and action? I guess, um, I guess it's the same as, as the drugs and alcohol yeah. and falling in front of trains and things. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's how specifically important it is to that person. Mm. I've, I've also been surprised how many people um, are actually really actively engaged in trying to be good. I don't mm. think I, yeah. I didn't understand yeah. that for a long time. And I think one of the surprises about going and living in Saskatchewan in the West is that it's clearer there because the community is a little stronger than when I'd been living in large cities. The people are more closely involved with each other in some way uh, maybe it's just because you know that somebody is constantly thinking about how to improve themselves, how to not be as selfish, or how to um, find a way to be socially active. Or you know, there there it is an actual obsession with people. But it's but in in it, her case, you know, there's this beautiful complexity about goodness, which is that you know she how much of what she does for this family is selfish. Yeah. How much of it is, and it awakens her. She wakes up and experiences yeah. life and has love in her, and in her life. Gets and gets so much from it. Yes, and, and, and so maybe that is the moral, if there is one, is that goodness feels good. But, it, but then it can go too far until it becomes overwhelming and takes over and, and you pass that point of being altruistically good or even um, gaining the good of goodness into just dictating people's lives for them. The character arc in, in, in your story is so beautiful, <laughs> how Clary grows and changes and opens up, and, and all the while that she's opening, we're just, you know, aware of the comeuppance that is, that will befall her, you know, you're just <laughs> waiting for it and, and oh, know. Yeah. And that scene you read is just so heart-rending. Um, well, I, I think I've got time for one more question before we, we should throw it open to the audience. And um, it's interesting what you said about uh, Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, and it would yeah. be it would be failing my duties as a chair to have two um, Canadian authors here in Edinburgh. Not 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 to ask you about the settings of your novel and how um, how they then have it informed the writing and the form. You know, the, I think both novels are kind of spacious in, in, in different ways. Um, um, well, your, your novel, it's, it's, it's a kind of leis leisurely kind of sets up this domesticity within the, within the family, um, and you get a very sense, of, you get a real sense of community and, and the people coming in, and yours, um, kind of spacious through time, I guess, you know, and these these, these memories having equal equal waiting, um, you know, there's no, there's no lack, there's no difference in immediacy between the way the past and the present is, is, is created. Um, 
perhaps I'm going too far with the spacious metaphor, but yeah, I what, I, what, like I really, yeah, what I really like to know is, is kind of where the novel, tell, me, tell us about where the novels are set and, and how, they've, how they've informed the writing of the novels. Perhaps you first. Well, um, I'm from St. John's, Newfoundland, and um, as are my parents and my grandparents and as far back as, you know, we can, we know. Um, I was really interested in the space of an oil rig. And in uh, 1982, no women would have been allowed on, on the oil rig. And no cameras are allowed on oil rigs usually, and no video cameras, because you know there are a lot of technical secrets out there that the companies like to keep private. And this oil rig was in the middle of the North Atlantic. And it, you can't last in that water for, you know, well, you're Four lucky. or something. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. so unbearably cold. And these men, some of them actually were in, the lifeboats were mostly crushed like eggshells. The men didn't have the proper uh, survival suits. So um, all, all kinds of safety uh, precautions were not taken. But uh, some men actually did uh, get in a lifeboat. The lifeboat was sinking. A uh, supply vessel came close enough to reach for them, but the men were so cold, they they couldn't lift their arms. They spoke and watched them die in the water. And the men on the supply boat, the, this was a horrific storm. The men's faces were iced over. The, you know, a metal shed was torn off one of the supply boats by the wind. The, the deck was full of ice. The men on the supply boat were, were uh, risking their lives every second that they were on deck. And I was struck by how unimaginable that void was, you know, for people left at home, especially women, to try and imagine that kind of hermetically sealed space of an oil rig. And, um, and also just the, you know, the darkness and, and the no land visible. I, I just, I, I was deeply struck by the bravery of the men who go out on oil rigs in in that kind of environment and risk their lives to, you know, raise families. That the chapter where you, or the section where you imagine, very carefully imagine the sinking, is incredibly difficult to read and and so worth reading. It's um, you must have thought when the uh, the rig sank in the or the rig was wrecked in the Gulf about what was happening there. Well, I thought about the families, actually, yeah, exactly. and they're hardly mentioned. No, because the disaster seemed so um, of such huge proportions environmentally that I thought about them as well, that 49 of them weren't there. There were a lot of them. I can't remember how many, but I can't remember. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it goes on all over and in lots of different kinds of industry. And, and the, the worth of human life is you know, towed it up <laughs> in, yeah. in risk assessment equations where profit is like literally figured into to risk and how much good will come to the community or meaning profit if, yeah. if lives are at risk. And it's very interesting sort of mathematics. Thank you. Um, and, and Marina, oh, what, so what have you tell us about, well, about your setting? And, and, and I'm not from Saskatchewan, and um, I had never lived anywhere like the small town of Saskatoon. It's a, it's a city, it counts as a city, but it's not, not very big. Um, 
And when I went there, I felt a bit like uh, an anthropologist, you know, going to a, a new culture and examining. I mean, people brought casseroles to their next door neighbors. This may happen in Edinburgh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you knew somebody was ill, a couple of people would go over to your house and say, can I clean your floors for you? I mean, can, is there something we can do? And I'd never, I mean, I think my parents were quite odd, you know, and quite standoffish. And so it never, that had never happened to me before. And I was fascinated by it. And, and, um, but it's tr really true. And, and uh, Mrs. Zenko is one of the characters in the, in the book who is a next-door neighbor who does a lot for them for no reason. She just does it. But when my husband read the book, he said, are you allowed to put my mother in a book like that? <laughs> <laughs> Copyright things? <coughs> so, it was a, so it was a kind of um, a ingratitude to, to Saskatchewan that I wrote that book. OK, thank you. Um, we, should throw, we should throw the questions out to the audience. Um, we, we've got uh, another five, five or so minutes, so um, I'm, sh I'm, sh I'm sure you have many questions to ask, Lisa and Marina. Um, You've asked too many good questions already. Yeah, you did a good job. Are there Canadians um, in the audience? Oh, One. we're from Calgary, Cochrane. <laughs> oh, eerie. Um, and somebody at the back was too. Where are you from? Yeah. Um, which reminds me that your, your book was published by an independent from Calgary. Yeah. Is, that, is that correct? Yeah, um, 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 a tiny little uh, publisher that uh, obviously they were insane. They decided to start a literary press out of nothing and, and did well. That's good. And a wonderful, wonderful editor called Melanie Little. Yeah. Hi, um, I had a question for Lisa Moore. Um, I've read, I think, all four of your books, actually. And, oh, thank um, you. When you were talking about uh, the scene you read from, the more the, the flashback, um, when, um, when she's writing what she wants in, in a partner, and she flashes back to, to Cal again and again. Um, I didn't notice it when I was reading it, but uh, Hearing it read back a year later, I read it when it came out last summer in Canada. Um, it sounded a lot like I remember um, the scene with Colleen and Frank in Alligator, even mm -hmm. though, even though there's such different emotions in the scene. I mean, that one's prefaced on a lie and ends with a th with theft, but but the, the the scene itself like was is still so visceral, and and I wonder if. I don't know if, if you might in, uh, contrast the two. Uh, well, Cal and Frank are young teenagers. Uh, Cal, um, Frank and Colleen are young teenagers who she's um, she wants to be an environmental terrorist, I guess, and and you know plans to sabotage a clear cut in the middle of Newfoundland, and he's a young. Uh, hard-working working-class guy and he sees her in a bar it's true they fall in love he falls in love with her and but well, she's and rescues her from a wet t-shirt contest that gets a little ugly <laughs> and he goes home with her and you're right decides him <laughs> that that you know he wants to marry her and uh, he he's worked his mother's died he works really hard to uh, raise money with a hot dog stand she's kind of more middle-class and uh, she, he goes out to get something, and she's gone when he comes back, and, and sh she's taken his money. 
and uh, like you know everything that he saved and um yeah you know i i think i am really interested in in the notion of uh true love really having to do with vulnerability and that just that thing of you you can't have it unless you unless you're open and if you're open you're you're kind of in danger and but you know what a delicious thrilling danger it is thank you um should we, should one more question before we, we, we close we, we could close now, actually, because it's half eight, and we, we've, had oh, a, we've had an hour of enormous entertainment. So <laughs> can we uh, all raise our hands? Thank you, thank you very much. Of course, we're great Thank you. Um, of course, uh, Lisa, Lisa and Marina will be signing books in um, the bookshop over that way, I think. Um, and uh, I hope you'll join us for a, for a chat and, and to get your book signed. Thanks very much. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.